creation, revealing that he is, he is a giving God. But if they disobeyed, they would surely die. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. That's a promise. And sadly, you probably know the story, instead of obeying God and receiving His gracious gift of all of creation, they, they ate of the tree and they rebelled against their Creator. Then, in one of the most shocking passages in all of the Bible, God calls Adam and Eve before Him to give an account. And you probably know that too. God says, Adam... Where art thou? And instead, that's why it's shocking, instead of fulfilling that promise of judgment that he made, he delays that promise. And then he makes another one. God tells them that they will die spiritually and physically, but the final judgment will be delayed until Revelation chapter 20 at the great white throne. Instead of bringing immediate judgment, God, as He promised, God delays that judgment until almost the very end of the Bible. And then He promises something else. He promises that a seed is going to come from the woman who is going to deal with the curse. And the rest of the Bible is about how God has been keeping that promise. You could trace the story of the Bible, as God creates, man rebels, God makes a promise, God delays a promise, He makes a promise in Genesis 3, and then God shows how He is fulfilling that. Now, don't misunderstand, God always keeps His promises, and final judgment will come. The Bible says, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. So that's coming. But Christmas is about the promise that God fulfills first. In fact, the Christmas story begins with a promise. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 12, so you don't have to turn there, but Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of the New Testament begins by pointing to this promise. Listen to Matthew 1, 1. It starts with a genealogy. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes on to... A long list. God begins His new revelation after hundreds of years of silence with a reminder of the promise that He made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And it's the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, that's not the, the first advertisement for Ancestry.com. That's not God's point there. It, you don't need that. You're all related anyway. You know, I know people make fun of West Virginia. You know why West Virginia is... is, is Called, it's called Almost Heaven. You know, I'm from West Virginia, so I can, I can tell this joke. You see why it's Almost Heaven? Because it's just like the Garden of Eden. We're all related, right? You're all related too. So why does God start with this genealogy? To show that there are better people than, than other people? Or that there's this idea of races out there, which all comes from evolution and has nothing to do with the Bible? There's one race, there's not many. It's related here, the genealogy, is because Matthew is reminding his readers of the promise. 
and how that promise is going to be fulfilled through Abraham and David. Jesus, the coming Messiah, is God fulfilling His promise, which comes through Abraham and David. And those are the two crucial moments. If you stand back and look at the Bible as a whole, there are two crucial moments where God shows how He is revealing that promise, how that promise becomes clear. And Matthew points them out. He points them out like like twin peaks to help you see the entire mountain range. Abraham and David. God promised the Son through Abraham. The one who would come and undo what Adam did. The one who would deal with the fall and bear the curse and remove sin and rebellion. That's the, the Son of Abraham. And God also promised a throne through David. God would make a true ruler from him. One who would reign like Adam was supposed to reign who was supposed to have dominion over the earth. Before he fell, he would bear God's perfect image and take dominion over the earth. The promised son would make a new people who were joint heirs with him, made in his image, and the promised king would come and make a new kingdom, which has no end. Son of Abraham, son of David. And God's promise is announced to all before his original promise of judgment is carried out. That's the good news. The gospel is to be proclaimed through all of the earth. And that is still happening this morning until that first promise was fulfilled that the judgment is is coming. And that's the promise that we're looking at, the promise that God is proclaiming throughout all of the earth and to you this morning. That's what He's fulfilling in Christmas. And we're going to look at two revelations from that. And we're going to look at the one to Abraham this morning. So if you're not there, open your Bible to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. We're only going to focus on the first three verses because that's really the heart of the of the promise. If you'd want to outline Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it's pretty easy. God's promise through two pledges that He makes to Abraham. God's promise is announced. Now remember... There was a vague promise made in Genesis 3. And throughout the Bible, God fills in the gaps. He gets more and more specific. And so here, God's promise is announced through two pledges that He makes to a man named Abraham. And there's the call of Abraham, and then there's the commission of Abraham, or we'll say Israel, in verses 1 and 2 and verse 3. You've probably learned this in Sunday school, but if I would rank the passages of the Bible that trace God's finger of redemption, Genesis 12 would be in the top ten. But Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 puts it in the top two. This is the son of David and the son of Abraham. In these three verses, verses 1 through 3, there are only seven clauses, and they they, they announce a passage that has cosmic importance. It's... It's not only the turning point in Genesis, but it's where God reveals details of His promise. There's the seed of the woman that doesn't tell us a whole lot. And so God fills in some details here. God declares through Abraham, or Abram, as the passage tells us, He intends to bless all mankind. And He moves the plan from a vague promise to a specific pledge, and God reveals how He's going to bring it to pass right here in this passage. Now, you might think that the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations is in Matthew chapter 28, but it's first right here in Genesis 12. 
God declares Abraham would receive grace, and then from him he will create a missionary nation to reveal his grace, and then through them all the families of the earth, including you this morning, will be blessed. That's what these three verses contain. It's quite a bit to be packed into three verses, and it's packed in there. Let's look at the first one. There's a call of Abraham to receive the promise. How's God revealing His promise? There's this call to Abraham to receive it. Look, if you would, at verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth to from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. Now here, without any warning or any build-up, God God's introduced, he, he speaks to Abram. And right on the heels of the judgment of the Tower of Babel. And, and Abraham is told, I'll go use both of those terms back and forth. You know, Abram was the name before he was renamed Abraham. Abram is told to leave his country, his ancestry, and his home to a place that God will show him. But at this point, it's not revealed. He's, he clearly says here, to the land which I will, which I will show you. But he's not revealing it yet. And the things that, that God calls Abraham to leave go from, from less to more intimate. He goes from his country to his relatives and then specifically to his father. He's to leave his country, which is the Ur of the Chaldees. He's a Chaldean, and this is the general area where he resides. He's, uh, Ur is located close to, uh, on the plain of, of Shinar, close to Babel. He's to leave his homeland, his relatives. It's... It's his birthplace. It's the place he was associated with. And then finally, in that inner circle, he used to leave his father's house. And that meant to break off connection with his family, inheritance, property, livestock, and, and all of the close fellowship that, that he had with his, with his immediate family. In Abraham's society, it, it's not like today. I mean, it's, I mean, here this morning, there are Californians living in Virginia. There's West Virginians living in Virginia. There's, it's normal for us to move around. It was not normal in, in, in Abraham's day. Where you were, 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 were born, you remained there because you had land and, and you knew where there was water. It's agricultural and, and, and you have access to the, to the sheep and to the goats and to whatever else was there. And leaving that meant that you, you, you lost all those previous blessings and all of that inheritance. And if God's called to leave this, this geography and society and ancestry and break all ties with them wasn't enough, Abraham's called to go to a place that he doesn't know. It, it, it's not revealed yet. It's, it's unknown. That's what it says in verse 1. To a land which I will show you. And we'll find out later that that's the, the land of Canaan, but Abraham didn't know where God was leading. It could have been to the mountains or it could have been to the sea. He doesn't know. I mean, can you imagine packing up your entire kids, home, dogs, moving van, whatever, pulling out never to return, and you have no idea where you're moving to? Most people won't even go on vacation. I don't even go on vacation without, uh, without uh, reserving the, the hotel before, before I leave, much less move. But did you know that's not the most, that's not the most amazing part of this call that God makes to Abraham? We are not told that, that Abraham or Abram had any previous relationship with God who was now speaking to him. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that Abram and his family worshipped other gods. Listen to Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. 
And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, that's, that's toward Ur, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abraham's home city was first excavated in 1854, and there's evidences of elaborate wealth and craftsmanship, but, but the, the center of the city of Ur was dedicated to the worship of the moon god. There's a ziggurat that's there. Every indication in Scripture is that Abraham was not a worshiper of Yahweh. He, if the Bible had not told us that in Joshua and in other places, we would have assumed that Terah and Abraham's father was a God-fearing man who brought him up just like he was supposed to, to believe in the one true God, but that's not the case. The most amazing thing about this call is not where God calls Abraham to go or the fact that Abraham launches out without having any idea where he's going. The most amazing thing about this call is that God calls him at all. (laughs) It's sheer, free, and amazing grace that God shows up to Abraham here. Abraham didn't deserve God to speak to him. Abraham is talking to other gods, and so is his family. But God speaks to him. And he says, leave all of that. Leave the location, leave your relatives, leave your father's house, and go follow me. I am the one true and living God. But God goes further and defines what he's going to do. He defines the grace that he gives to to Abraham as a specific promise. In fact, there's three of them. He says, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and I'll make your name great. Look, if you would, at verse 2. Here's the beginning of those clauses that I was telling you about. There's seven of them. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and I will make your name great in verse 2. God declares He's going to do three things, all by grace, to Abraham, for Abraham. He promises Abraham, these three things, He promises Abraham exactly what Adam and the mankind before the flood and what the men of Babel sought. Or as Walt Kaiser called them, the, the men of the fall, the flood, and the flop. The tower of Babel was a flop. What happened in the fall? Adam and Eve wanted blessing and wanted knowledge and wanted to do things their own way. Why did the flood come? Because men attempted to do the same thing. What was the purpose of the Tower of Babel? To make their name great. They wanted to make their own nation. They wanted blessing their own way. They wanted a great name other than God, all by their own hand and all without Him. What mankind desired and failed to obtain, God pledges to Abraham, except he brings it by sheer sovereign grace to this man who worshipped other gods. God promises to bring many people from Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abraham is childless at this point. And his wife is known as childless. He says his offspring will be a great nation and God will he'll bless Abraham, who didn't deserve blessing, and God will give him a name that all men know. Do all men know the name of Abraham today? 
people call it the, the unbelievers call it the three religions of the world: Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. There is but one God and one true follower of His. And that's those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But everybody knows Abraham, just exactly like God promised here. And if you're reading Genesis, now remember, we're kind of parachuting in to Genesis chapter 12 for this Christmas series, but if you were reading Genesis, if you'd read Genesis through, and you'd just be in the flow of the story, creation, and then the fall, and then the curse, and then Cain and Abel, and then the flood, and some genealogies in there, and and how Noah doesn't fix the problem, what's Noah do right after God saves Noah? He gets drunk, and then his son looks upon his nakedness. And that's God saying, the, the, this is not the answer, this is not the seed, there's still something that has to come. And then the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, and now God just intervenes right here, starts speaking to a man that doesn't know him in Genesis chapter 12. If you were reading through that, you're supposed to see a bold contrast here between Adam and between the, the, the mankind that was destroyed in the flood and between the individuals that tried to build this, this tower and make a name for themselves. Right here, after the last scene in that series, from Genesis 3 to 11, the Tower of Babel, the men of Babel pursued everything by disobeying God, and Abraham would receive, would receive it as a gift, and he's called to obey the one that shows up and reveals himself to him by grace. Now, that much in the text is very clear. But the question comes, why? I mean, what's the purpose for that? What, what's the purpose that God would do this for one isolated individual who wasn't even his follower? Well, the answer to that is grace. And there's, there, there's, there's no reason behind grace other than God is just God. But, but God actually gives us an answer in this passage. And then he specifically spells it out in verses, the end of verse 2 and verse 3. There's the commission of Israel to reveal the promise. Look at the end of verse 2. Watch how this changes. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. You see the change there? I will, I will, I will, so that you will. You follow it? God says, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name famous, and the result or purpose is so that you may be a blessing. And then the rest of the passage explains specifically how Abram or Abraham is going to be a blessing, how God's going to use Abraham as a vessel of blessing through to the entire world, all the families of the earth. The verse is a purpose clause in Hebrew. And it tells us the reason for God's promise to Abraham. God didn't choose Abraham because he was a good man or even a man who sought God. God didn't choose Abraham to single him out as one of God's favorites to spoil him with gifts. God chose Abraham so that he might be a blessing to others. So he will be a blessing to others. Abram, or Abraham was more than a recipient of God's grace. He was a receptacle of God's grace, and then he was to reveal God's grace to others. He's a transmitter. He's a conduit. He's a receiver, and then a transmitter. And God promised all of this so that he might spread the blessing. Did you know God's done the same thing for you if you're a Christian this morning? 
God has made you a conduit of grace. He didn't set His love on you because you're smarter than the average bear, because you're a good person, because you're special in any way. In fact, you're far worse than you ever could imagine that you are. God set His love on you, and you're here this morning, if you're a Christian, by by sheer grace, undeserved. And that's not for you to hold on to. That has a purpose behind it. It's a purpose not for you just to receive the blessing. It's the purpose so that you would reveal that grace and pass it on to others. He's done more than make you into a great nation. He's made you part of His very family. You're His son, and you have many brothers and sisters. Thank God for the church. He's blessed you personally, hasn't He? You're alive today. You're sucking air in your lungs right now. That's blessing. And if you haven't thought about that lately, you haven't counted your blessings, you should to guard yourself from falling into the the evil heart of unbelief or being unthankful. That's how Romans 1 describes unbelievers. They're unthankful for what God's given them. Don't be like an unbeliever if you're a Christian. He's blessed you personally, just like Abraham, and and he's... He's made your Savior's name great, which is far better than than your great. I don't know about you, but I don't want a great name. I want to lift up the great name of Jesus, don't you? I don't care if anybody remembers me. The only thing I care is if people know about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if my life is lived in some way that people would know who Jesus is and know what He said in His Word and know how He's fulfilling this promise and know that He will fulfill the promise of judgment that is to come, then my life is well lived. Amen? And all of that is so that you would be a blessing to others. You get to experience it, but it's not only for you. You see your Christian life that way? I hope so. But that's not all. God tells us who Abraham was to bless and how that blessing was to come. Look, if you would, in verse 3, there's to sow that. Here's another series of promises. Look at verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, or in order that, or so that, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here's another series of promises, but the verbs change into the perfect tense. You say, I don't know anything about that. Well, let me tell you the significance of that. It's a future promise, it's a future purpose with a past promise. This is looking into the future. God is making a declaration here that stands even today. The blessing that comes to all of the nations of the world, all of the nations of the earth, stands today and it's rooted in this promise, this verb that that He makes all the way back here. And now God takes it beyond Abraham personally. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And now He turns it to a wider lens, not just Abraham, but to the to the whole world. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you, so that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
God defines two groups of people who will respond to His, to his work through Abraham. You see that? Look at verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. So there's some who's getting blessed. And I will curse the one who curses you. I will curse. Somebody's getting cursed. You see the two groups? And then, here's everybody. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And it's another promise. God promises, God declares His purpose for making the promise to Abraham was to bless the whole world. That's at the very end of verse 3. It was so that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The word is literally families of the, of the earth. <clears throat> it's a promise that's repeated throughout Genesis. It's a missionary mandate of God. And here is the outline of the Great Commission in the Old Testament. I mean... I don't know about you, but you you, you may have, uh, if you've seen someone sketch a, a painting, they'll sketch the outline on a on a piece of a paper or on a canvas, and then they'll go back in and they'll they'll paint it. Now, some people just just start painting, but some will, will 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 draw it out like a penciled portrait. That's what this is. Long before it was painted, God outlines the promise He intends to fulfill. Israel received the promise. Abraham received it. He becomes a great nation, which is Israel. Not because they were better or good, but by grace, in order to be a blessing to all people. This passage is often misunderstood because people limit it to what it has to do with the nation of Israel. It clearly implies to the nation of Israel, but it's not limited to that. It has a much greater significance. God says in this verse, the promise of the gospel goes far beyond Israel. It goes to all the families of the earth. It includes Jews and Gentiles. It includes physical children of Abraham, and it also includes spiritual children of Abraham. And that should be surprising, because the entire point of the passage is that the blessing of God comes... By His grace, not because of family, not because of flesh, not because of the will of Abraham. This is exactly what John is pointing to when he declares in his very first chapter in the Gospel of John, in verse 9, there was the true light which was coming into the world which enlightens every man. Every man, not just Jews. He was in the world and the world was made through Him and the world did not know Him. He's the Creator. The creator comes to His creation. And he came unto his own. That's the children of Abraham. And to those who were his own, they did not receive him. His own received him not. But listen to verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become or to be called children of God. It's not just the children of Abraham. Physically, you can be a child of God, even to those who believe on his name. And if this was the purpose, that all the families of the earth would be blessed, if this was the purpose of Abraham and Israel before the Messiah came, how much more important is the task after He has come and died and rose from the dead? That's why Matthew 28, 19, and 20 makes the statement that it does. 
it is drawing from Genesis chapter 12 and telling us this promised one has come. He's accomplished the work on the cross, rose from the dead. So go, tell everybody that the promise is there because God intends all the families of the earth to be blessed. Every gift from God is to be shared for the benefit of others. And we're to be recipients and receptacles of grace and everything we have is from God and it is to be passed on. The gift of salvation is not meant to be held in. Just like the blessing of Abraham was not to be consumed only on his self. So that's clear. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's God's purpose. The promise goes to all the earth. The promise comes by grace. It's a promise that God made while He's delaying the final one of judgment. We now know it's going to come through this man named Abram. God's going to do specific things for him. He pledges specific things to him. He's going to make a nation. So that nation is going to be involved. So it's clear who God intended the the blessing for all of the earth, but it's also clear how the blessing comes, how the blessing is received by you. And that's the first part of verse 3. Look at verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. Now, who's talking here? God. I will bless I will curse. Abraham's not talking here. Abraham's not saying, I'll bless those who bless me and I'll curse those who curse me. Israel's not talking here. This is God Himself talking here. I will bless and I will curse. This is the foundation of God's promise. It's like looking at the footers of a house. You get the boundaries of who is who's going to be in the promise and who's going to be out of the promise. Now, when you look at footers of the house, you can't tell if it's going to be two-story. You can't tell if it's going to be brick or siding or what. But you see the boundaries. Here's the boundaries. There are going to be people blessed and there's going to be people cursed. And that's going to be based upon what they do with Abraham and the God of Abraham who promises something through him. You see that? What is abundantly clear in this passage is the purpose is for all the families of the earth to be blessed. And what is also abundantly clear is that this blessing, this promise will only come through Abraham and how you respond to God's promise through him will determine whether you're included in the blessing or not. God divides up mankind into two groups of people. People who make an opposite response to Abraham and the God of Abraham by implication. And God will bless all men through Abraham and some will receive it and others will not. And some will bless him and some will curse him based upon what they see God doing in this this promise. There is no middle ground with God. You say, I haven't figured it out yet. I don't know where I stand on Jesus Christ. I don't know what whether I believe the Bible or not. You're already cursing and you're already cursed. I mean, there's no middle ground. You're, you're, God's long-suffering. That's very evident, right? I mean, He's delayed the ultimate judgment. That's an evidence. I mean, God could have and should have. And His justice would have demanded 
that He immediately bring Adam and Eve to an end and fry everybody, including you and me this morning, and just just forget the whole thing. But He's long-suffering. He doesn't desire any to perish. (laughs) But He wants you to come to repentance. And what do you need to repent of? You need to repent of what you do with the God of Abraham. What you do with the one who's coming through Abraham, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you will bless Him, if you will agree that it is Him and salvation comes through Him, to Him, and then by grace to you, then you will receive the promise, which is judgment will be poured out on Him and eternal life. But if you reject Him, if you curse Him, then God has no, oper- no choice but to bring that final judgment and that cursing on you. You gain the promise the same way that Abraham did. Like Abraham having nothing to do prior and not deserving, God, God reaches to you today. I don't know where you've been. I don't know where you live. I don't know where you came from. I don't know what's going on in your life. It doesn't matter. If you don't know Jesus Christ, God calls you to leave your sin and your rebellion and your life and follow Him and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian today and you've already done that, God calls you to be a conduit of that grace, to reveal that grace to others. And He doesn't let anybody off the hook in this passage. And how you respond to the offer of salvation by grace alone will then determine whether you're blessed or cursed in the very end, in the very last day. And you gain that promise the same way Abraham did. You leave what you know and turn your life completely to God and to His Word because of who He is. You repent and believe. You you trust and obey. You forsake and you follow. And God will bless. And then He'll give you the opportunity to be a blessing to others. I don't know if you've got here yet or not, but if you live long enough, you will. By God's grace, if God's gracious, you will. You'll realize that whatever you're living for is insufficient. And you won't find any satisfaction in anything else in the world. And no matter what you see on TV, and no matter what you hear at the water cooler or everywhere else, people talking about how the good time that they're having, it's pleasurable for a season, but it's going to end. The only thing worth living for, the only one worth living for, is the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel. And I'm telling you, it's, it's not easy. But God will help you. But it's worth it. Christian, is it worth it? It's worth it. Let's pray. Here we have the promise of, of, Christian, uh, of Christmas. And the promise that if you are a Christian, you to share that with, with others. So... You know your heart. If you don't know the Lord this morning, if you never bowed the knee to Him, if you've... He's called to you. And He wants to forgive your sin. And He wants to give you purpose in life. But you can only come His way. And it doesn't matter whether you've worshipped other gods or how big of a wreck your life is. God called Abraham as he was, but didn't leave him where he was and didn't leave him as he was. He changed him. So you can come just like you are, but God won't leave you that way.
And you've got to want the Lord to change you. And after I'm done praying, there's a prayer room over here. If you, you don't know Christ or you want to pray about something, maybe you're a Christian and you, you want to just commit yourself to, to being a blessing to others you haven't been lately, then you'll have an opportunity to do that after we sing.